Are you ready to manage your work and personal world better to live a fulfilling, productive life? Then you've come to the right place. Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things productivity. Here are your hosts, Ray Sidney Smith and Augusto Pinaud, with Francis Wade and Art Gelwicks. Hello and welcome back to Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things personal productivity. I'm Ray Sidney Smith. I'm Francis Wade. Augusto Pinot. Welcome, gentlemen, and welcome to our listeners to this episode of Productivity Cast. In this cast, what we're going to be doing today is having a little bit of a debate, uh, as we do every week. <laughs> um, but today we're going to be uh, kind of debating the the notion of um, should you do what you love as a career, uh, and and having a, a bit of a discussion around this notion of uh, you know career. Uh, satisfaction, career fulfillment, and productivity. There is a there is a, a, a an overlap there. If you have like the Venn diagram of career satisfaction and productivity, and and that space there, um, we're we're going to really um, dive into that sliver for us. Uh, this topic was um, developed by Francis. So Francis, what? made you think of this topic and, and what, what brought it to mind? Something I read that uh, pointed out that people who do what they love, especially in the nonprofit sector, can often result in burnout or end up in burnout. And it's because they, they love what they do so much that they end up tipping their work-life balance or work-life integration in a way that's not fruitful. So they, they put up with 60 70-hour, 80-hour work weeks, pursuing a passion or a cause or, a, you know, altruistic motive. You know, you could be trying to save the whales. And because you're so committed to saving the whales, you then end up working 80 hours. So your body doesn't care whether you're saving the whales or selling real estate or doing, doing multi-level marketing or it, your body doesn't care. When you're putting in the 80 hours of work, it feels the brunt anyway. And it talked about the need for people who are nonprofits and who are altruistic to also seek this kind of balance. But it made me think in general, when I was, uh, I guess, entering the professional world or sort of establishing myself in the 90s, I remember a book that was entitled Do What You Love and the Money Will Follow. If it wasn't a book, it was an article. And this was highly debated. You know, there was a kind of a, almost quasi-religious belief that if you could just find what you love and then put all of your eggs in the basket, then the universe would magically come to your rescue and provide you with bottom line profits. And that, 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 that also is one of the genesis, I think, why we're having this, this conversation, because there is that thought out there and there are many sides to this coin. So that's, 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 I guess what, what the, the core of the matter is, is it true? Should it be pursued? Is it different for different people? Or is there just a practical hard market reality here? And it's nothing to do with the woo-woo. I definitely have a copy of that book sitting on my shelf right here in view. <laughs> uh, from 1980, 1989. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so so let's, let's start off with um, what is the reason for having a career that you enjoy uh, in 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 uh, parlance today, we're we're calling it love, but we can call it fulfillment or satisfaction or what have you. But what is the what is the reason for doing that? And again, I I want to really stay in the lens of personal productivity here for purposes of being productive. That is time, team, task, project, energy, those types of managements. 
of oneself. What's the what's the reason? What's the goal if you want to be more productive to love what you do? What's the argument there? When you look at what you do or don't do, and you look at from the lens specific of the productivity, it comes to be really, really important what you do. The reason of, I believe of that is if you don't enjoy what you do, it is really hard to be productive. You know, if you get, you know, when I work with productivity with my coaching clients, okay, and you look at the stuff that they procrastinate, the stuff that is on their list for years, some of them you wonder, okay, why this has been there for years? The reason is I'm afraid. I don't enjoy it. I, you know, I, there are many reasons on that. And, and all of them at the end comes to this is something that I'm not passionate or afraid to it. So if you get a career where you have zero passion, okay, can you do it? Yeah. Can you be good at it? Yes. Can you be your best at it? No. It's, it's not. I don't believe it's possible. I believe that component that passion component, it's really, really a key to attain a high level of productivity and to attain a balanced, happy life on that. If you love what you do, you're more likely to be really, really good at it at some point. And you're more likely to invest the hard hours and the learning and the self-training and the evaluations. You're more likely to develop yourself in, in that direction. I think that's as an endpoint, everyone would agree. And, and there's actually a study that I'm, I just put up in the show notes. It, it shows multiple levels of motivation. And the most motivated person is the one who does what they do because they love it, only because they love it, and not because of the outputs or because of the potential or because of the money or because of the peer pressure or because of the inertia. So those the, the list that I just gave are the other reasons why people do their jobs and they're all lesser than than the actual love of the work itself which is the highest highest in this particular article it's some research done from the 1980s but but and here's the big but what we learned back in the day 1989 as you said puts the cart before the horse according to people like Cal Newport and I think it's true from my observation also which is that even though that's the end point and even though we could agree that that's the ideal, the harder question is, how do you get from here to there? And that's where, that, 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 that I think is really interesting and counterintuitive. And that's where we've learned that the message of the 1989 book doesn't bear out in practice. I, there is an old saying that says, the most dangerous guy on the field is the guy who is having fun. And I, I wish to tell you who said that. And But I have believed that, you know, and I have seen it in practice, you know, many, many years ago when I was, you know, in the, in the sales, in the active sales for electronic world as a sales manager. You could see who were the guys having fun in the field and the level of success. And it was really correlation. And I, over the years, keep that on the front of the mind because I have seen clients and friends and business partners, those that are having fun, okay, tend to be more productive, tend to be, 
you know, more passionate about what they do, tend to be much better about the work they are doing, tend to be stellar about the results they're getting. I don't know. I don't think, you know, that field of dreams or, or the book, you know, build it and they will come. It works. But what I can tell you is the people I have seen build it without that passion eventually walk away. That built the business, built the career. Either way, it is really a tough thing to do when you have no passion. And I I agree that the numbers are against you, but the numbers are against you. It doesn't matter what you do. If you said, well, I'm going to be an engineer, how many engineers are on the streets that is going to make a difference for you to be the number one? You may or may not, but if you don't have the the passion, you you most likely will not have the stamina to push that long enough to at least be able to aim on the top part. I will direct everybody's attention to a really amazing speech that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave called the Street Sweeper Speech. And what he talked about, he happened to be talking to some inner city kids and trying to educate them about this notion, which is that no matter what you do in life, if you do it with a sense of excellence, then you you will be fulfilled that you will feel good about your place and role in society. And, and, and I've always held to this notion that if I'm going to be a dishwasher or if I'm going to be a lawyer, I'm going to practice both of those crafts with a standard of excellence, which means that no matter what I'm doing, I'm going to be challenged to do my best. And if you think about it from that perspective, being productive in that environment is identifying activities that you can improve, you can optimize. And as long as you're engaged, you're challenged in those ways, then you'll be motivated. Uh, I, I was I was talking before we started recording about, you know, my ongoing theory is that challenge is motivation in the sense that uh, there is a a standard, there's a, a level of challenge, or you could call it friction or whatever you want to, but there is some kind of, of amount of energy necessary to be pushing against you for you to then want to use that energy differently. And it's like complacency, right, is a, is a form of discomfort. And we just get challenged, we get challenged to do things. So anyway, my point is, is that we all need a certain amount of challenge and we can create our own challenge. So in the dishwasher example, you could plan to clean the dishes cleaner than any other dishwasher. You can create a little competition, right? Uh, you can you can plan to uh, clean dishes faster or um, at the end of the evening when you've got to mop the floors and close up the, the equipment, you could uh, see how quickly you can get that done up to the level of standard necessary, right? Because it's not about compromising on quality. It's about being able to figure out how to do it in ways that are highly optimal. So you can, you can really just hate the job, but love what you're doing because of the challenge you create in that environment. And the same thing with being a lawyer, right? Being a lawyer is not all that fun sometimes, uh, but you can create all kinds of interesting uh, challenge. You know, you can take on engaging cases, if you have latitude in your company to be able to do that in the firm that you work for, you can you can uh, 
specialize in different areas of law and uh, and therefore uh, find particular aspects of the law that you want to really focus on. So on either side of, of the coin, no matter what life gives you, the street sweeper speech has really fundamentally always spoken to me in that sense that I don't really need to do what I love if my job pays the bills. I happen to be really lucky in the world, and I happen to be able to do what I love, but I don't think everybody does, nor does everybody. I have a dear friend who is a bureaucrat and uh, and has been his entire career, and I can't imagine that he loves what he does. I, I don't know that he's explicitly said that he doesn't, but you're talking about a highly productive person who works in the government. Like, this is not enough of an oxymoron. <laughs> um, and yet here we are with someone who really does, they care about what they do. I don't think they love their job, but they care about what they're doing. They care about the purpose of what they're doing. And so this leads me to my next kind of thought and question for you guys, which is, when we talk about a career, is it the same as when we're talking about a profession, a job, vocation, avocation, hobby, or otherwise? Like, what's the difference between doing what you love there and being productive there and, say, for example, having a side hustle where you might be highly productive in that environment and potentially not as productive at work. You're just kind of treading water. I put up a, a diag diagram. It, it's a four-part Venn diagram. It's pretty popular, but it, there is a circle that says that which you love. There's one that says that which the world needs. There's one which says that which you can be paid for. Another one which says that which you are good at. And then it, it, it has a sweet spot where all four of them combine. I think that what you're asking is can you live a life which has multiple kinds of fulfillment. And I think, yes, money is one part. If you can pay the bills and love what you do, that's th those are good. But I think there's also things that you're good at. There's things that you're curious about. There's things that the world actually needs at a very high level because arguably the street sweeper, if he or she only stays at the level of street sweeping, won't make a profound difference in the world in their street sweeping by itself. They could take it to a whole nother level and go into sanitary, the sanitary ways to street to clean streets and take it to, you know, take it to training and they could expand on the whole concept and take it to the whole another level. But I think what you're saying is, does it is it helpful to think of fulfillment as uh kind of what this Venn diagram, way this Venn diagram says and, and or implies that there are multiple ways to think about fulfillment and the richer they are, kind of the more fun it is because no, no it's really a multi-part multi, multi -part game. It's not just a, a game of getting enough money to feed my kids. You know, that's a very simple game. And when life reduces to that kind of basic level, it's not a lot of fun, right? But we, we are now... You know, here in 2000, 2020, we are capable of thinking of fulfillment in multiple dimensions and paying attention to fulfillment in all these dimensions. And, you know, we're lucky we have the resources, the, the Internet, which can allow us to find people who 
are have all these different kinds of commitments that we have and we can nurture them with good time blocking techniques right <laughs> we could actually invest in them and we, we need not we need not live a life that is sort of collapsed and surrendered like I, I, the person that you mentioned remind me of reminds me of a couple of I hate to say this and I don't mean to put down civil servants but it I have found the culture echoed in the civil service where people say you know I'm just holding on to retirement and as long as I get my check I'm good I don't care what they tell me I don't care whether I like it or not I don't care how long I stay I don't care they've basically turned off all these other switches that we're trying to turn on in this conversation and they sound a bit resigned they sound very resigned and I remember running into a friend of mine from college uh, about 15 years ago and I remember when he was alive and he loved oceanography you know and he ended up not pursuing it because there wasn't enough money in it. He ended up pursuing another another profession altogether. And when I saw him, he was in a part of the government that was deadening. And he said, you know, I don't really like the job. I don't like what I'm doing. I didn't I give up the oceanography. I had to do this instead. And I'm just holding on to retirement because I get a really good pension. And I, I, I saw my friend, who I remember as a college student, who was so alive with possibility. I now saw him as someone who had lost his way. So there's that. Yeah, so I have a couple comments there. And just to play devil's advocate, which is one, uh, so one is clarification. So the the uh, the diagram you were talking about for folks who, who want, we'll place this, uh, an image of this in the show notes, uh, the comparison, but there is something called ikigai. And uh, the ikigai is roughly translated in Japanese to reason for being. There is a lotus diagram uh, that was developed by Mark Wynn and Dan Butner, uh, the gentleman who who did the research on the blue zones. The notion here is that he built out this the lotus version of the diagram and kind of exp- expands upon that notion of the four circle diagram for purposes of of reason for being, and it shows where uh, you know a vocation and and those kinds of things really um, develop in your world based on what earns you money, what you love, uh, what you're good at, and uh, what the world needs. And so really, it's about contribution. And so the um, so there's that. And so you can go, you can go check that out. And it's really, really interesting to look at that diagram and understand where things fit based on the overlap of those four ovals. So then to to the argument that Francis is making, I will say I will say this that people have other interests in their life outside of their job. You are not your job, and I'll give you a reason why. I was really wrapped up in the identity of um, you know my prior uh, position, the, the prior company that I owned. Uh, and and when that ended, and the 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 title was no longer mine, right? In the sense that I was no longer in this industry and I was no longer in this position in this community because I, you know, it's just, that was it. That was the end of the, that was the end of the road for me in that space. Uh, It was extremely depressing. And 
I, I, I just want people to recognize that if you get too wrapped up in a particular career, especially nowadays when we change careers so often, we should be more aware of our, our functional skills than we should our, our roles and the, the larger kind of macro look at a single career. We're going to have, you know, most people are going to have multiple careers in their lives and, when you retire, for example, and I hope that all of you listening get that opportunity, when that happens, or at least have the ability to, you know, some people don't want to retire, but, you know, you want to continue doing things. And when you when you change from being in your, say, active career and decide to then retire, you don't want to lose purpose and meaning in life because of this arbitrary title that you've, that you've assumed. You want to be and you want to be able to use the skills you have productively in whatever pursuit you have. That's my argument. And I think that if you can do that, then it doesn't matter what you're doing. And to, to kind of the point you were making, Francis, about the, the, the friend you had who kind of didn't have a passion, I think that finding passion doesn't have to be found in the thing that pays you. And for say, for example, the, uh, the street sweeper, uh, or the or the dishwasher, for example, that argument actually is uh, more insidious, because it tells people that, and I know that you didn't mean this, but I mean, it somewhat tells people that they don't have a place in society that's valuable, not and that wasn't your argument, I believe your argument was to, to the effect that they didn't feel like they were contributing in a way. And that by itself may not be a satisfying. But if you if you say that that people don't have purpose and meaning in the in the grander objectives of society, that is is somewhat demeaning to the to the role of that individual. And I'll give an example. Um, you know, I'm I'm working with a particular client who is doing some really amazing things in the world, and I'm a small cog in that but that I can be a part of it by helping him means that I'm contributing to this much grander goal in the world. And so everybody needs the dishes washed. Everybody needs uh, the garbage taken. Those roles contribute because of interdependence on the planet. And so we cannot disregard any small role as being not worthwhile doing and I hope that people who maybe think that their role is insignificant remembers that they're playing that role in the larger quilt of moving forward the mission and vision of their organization or of society generally. So, so Kyle Newport offers a, an amazing rebuttal. So he says, do not, do not wait around basically to find this passion as if it will alight upon you like the sun shining from over the <laughs> over the rooftops into your eyes to tell you that you're on purpose. No, he says, do what you do and find purpose and passion in it. And I can say from my from my experience, firsthand experience, that that's exactly what happened in my case, and it happened unexpectedly, and it's it it's transferable, it's scalable, is what he says in his book, I think. Or that's where I read it, that 
anyone, even the street the street keeper, that street sweeper that we're talking about. So we may we may look from the outside and judge and say, you know, he he or she doesn't add huge value, and you know they're playing a very small role, and it's so minor that it doesn't really matter in the scheme of things. I read his book and I I say, but well, that's nonsense. There is a there is a a level that someone and I I, I wrote an article. I maybe I should put it in the show notes about a plumber that I knew, and he he's passed away now. But this guy came to my house, and I actually knew him from a prior incarnation, prior relationship. Didn't even remember he was a plumber until I was referred to him, and I said, "Oh yeah, I know that guy." So he comes to the house, right, and he gives me an exposition on plumbing that was fascinating. No. Somebody may say, well, he's just a plumber. No, I don't believe there's any just on anything. I believe that, that what Cal Newport says is true. You can, you can carve and create and find expertise anywhere if you have the willingness to do so. And if you are willing to, which is, what, which is the way I think he puts it, if you're willing to fall in love, then it doesn't really matter where you start. And if you think it's the other way around, he says, you're wrong. If you think you have to find the love first and then you'll do the work to discover its inner intricacies. He said it doesn't work that way. And I thought that was fascinating because it matched my my experience, personal experience and my experience of this plumber. I will say that I, I think we're saying the same things because I, while don't always agree with Professor Newport, as you know, uh, <laughs> regarding certain things, um, I, I do agree on this, that passion is actually something that develops over time. It is not something that you have before you start it. And uh, this is this is akin to the idea that people are motivated by other things, um, by other drivers than, than, than challenge um, when it comes to, say, a career or by a, a a function that they that they satisfy. Uh, most people, in in the productive sense, are are motivated by challenge, and um, and when they don't have that challenge, that's when things are mundane, and then they don't want to do things. Um, and the same thing with passion. Passion actually is a a lagging factor. It's not a leading factor. That is, I think we're saying the same things here. I think that you know when the when it comes to following your passion, uh, it should be. Uh, living into the passion, a little bit of a corollary to Rainer Maria Rilke. Uh, so I'm, I'm right there with you. Coming a little bit back to what you were saying at the beginning, I think there is an important decision and comment to make in here. You can do, I, I, the problem for me is not if you work your passion. Hey, if you can find and work your passion, great. I know people who do job who are not their passion, but they are using whatever this job produce, income, prestige, time, whatever it is, to pursue their passion. And they don't want to keep their passion, but they have the passion. The, the issue I found is the people who have no, that who have lost the pursuit of that passion. It's fine. If you decide to do, you know, the job, hey, I... Okay, and you are going to do, you know, street sweeper because it's, but at the end of the week, okay, you go and now you volunteer because that's what is your passion. But you don't want to do that in your day-to-day. That's awesome. The problem comes when you, if you can't or don't want to make your passion, your work, your day-to-day living 
and you go to the job and you forgot about that passion component. And that is the people I was referring at the beginning. And I sadly know a lot of them that come and have this work. They may be good even, but they are never going to be their best. Not at that. And you come and you ask them, you know, what is what you do after? And they come white. You know, I had a client once who came and told me, well, my favorite thing is running. Great. So what do you do for running after you get out of work? Oh, I have been not run. I haven't run for the last three years. So that disconnection, as obviously as it was for this person when she explained it to me, it is what I seen a lot of people experience. Yes, they have the job who cover the bills, who do that, but it do not produce anything. And what they are sadly experiences is a really, really slow death where they lost that pursuit for the passion, that excitement, and then just now try to or kind of turn into an automaton who go eight to five, do what they need to do, but they have not in there, not anywhere else, any kind of passion. Yeah, I think I think what you're talking about absolutely fits into the the core of of the discussion here, which is when in doubt, understand that you can find mastery in your career in a in a job role, and you can find it outside of that job role. But the goal is to keep looking for something that you can be skilled at and find that type of mastery there, and that will lead to general life fulfillment, not necessarily career fulfillment. I want us to, to uh, close out our conversation with some action for our listeners. That is to say, what can, what can someone listening do from an action perspective to, say, change the trajectory of their career or um, find a different career if this one isn't fulfilling or satisfying or what have you? What can they do to uh, either love what they do as a career or at least find fulfillment, life or or at least some kind of productive fulfillment? The the first thing I will I will say is where are you in this? And I'm understanding I'm oversimplifying this in three groups. You know, the group who do their their passion for a living, the group who work and have a passion, or the group who work and have no passion. Okay. Where are you? Where do you think you spend most of your time? In which of those three boxes? And identify that. And obviously, if you find yourself into that last box, okay, if you find that yourself into that place where, well, I am, you know, I yeah, I'm doing the work and I go to work, but I don't have anything else after that, and I don't have a passion for this. Well, begin to going back into that. You know, when there's a product that I create called Impact Journal, and, and the Impact Journal came from me coaching clients that get to a point that I call success that tastes like failure. You look at these people from the outside, and they are successful. They are careers. They are okay. They they are relatively successful. But when you talk to them, 
they are dead inside. They have no passion. They have lost that connection with passion, and and they are really in pain, you know. And they are now not only in pain, but they have no passion and they are afraid to leave. So, if you are there, there are many solutions to that. It may not make, as Francis was saying at the beginning, it may not substitute the income you can you are making, but we can get you back into the meaning, into the happiness, into compensate a little bit more what you are having there. Okay. If you are obviously in the second group, make sure that is making, you know, a living but have this passion outside and they have zero interest on compensate. See how you can permeate more of that passion into the work. It doesn't need to mean change and pursue that as a full time, but sometimes it's, okay, can I do, can I get, bring a little bit of this passion into work? Can I, you know, if you volunteer and you love volunteering, okay, can I convince my company to volunteer in the things that I love to? So those two things bring you more closer to that and create a less black and white distinction between one another that at the end, from the productivity aspect, will make you a much more productive and a much more happy person. Yeah, in in terms of practical advice, I agree with everything Augusto said. And I would add the, I added a diagram in the show notes from the, the Harvard article I referred to, ranging from inertia to play. And what I would recommend that folks do is, one, look at just draw an inventory of their life and see where they are in the continuum and how much play there is and where it is and you know all the different all the different levels go they could go through each area of their life and say this one is at level play this one is at level inertia this one is here and just tell the truth do an accurate accounting of the different areas of their life and how engaging they are i think that would open up vistas because obviously we 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 all want to have as much love and play in our life as we can that's i'd say true and there are folks who don't have any at all most of us are in between but i think what cal newport's book is pointing to is a skill it's a lifelong skill and i've met people who are in their 90s who have an aunt who's 93 or 94 and she's always looking to pick up new knowledge and, and new skills. So this is a this is not a terminal frame of mind. This is more of a life orientation. And if you possess it and if you develop it to this very high, keen level, the technology that exists allows us to pick any topic, any area of our life, anything, anything we wish, and take it to the next level if that's what we want to do. But not everyone knows that they can do that. So I've met lots of people who would say, you know, I'm interested in this area. When I ask the next question, oh, um, what kinds of things are you looking at in that area? They say nothing. I say, well, I thought you were interested in it. Yeah, but I'm too busy, or I don't know how to do this, or I can't afford that, or I can't even get started, or in other words, they don't have the skill of making the pursuit of that which they love a priority. And I think that skill is one that is life energizing and life transforming. That that you just described, Francis, how it gets connected and related to what 
Dr. Carol Dweck calls the um, mindset and on the book mindset, you know, it's about the growth mindset. And if these people, you know, part of the issue is they lack a growth mindset. So they understand what they have or the skills they have, and that's the only thing they they know what to act. While a person with a more grown mindset will be able and will be open to continue that learning process open. And and I wonder if that is also a big factor into this. So I will give a a little bit of a description of an exercise that you can do. And this all comes down to some some work around the the notion of job crafting. And it is making these these kinds of modifications to your current world, uh, career-wise or otherwise, um, in order to be able to to uh, you know just increase fulfillment in what you're doing. Um, and so this this is actually uh, based on three different pieces: uh, the tasks you're accomplishing, the relationships you have, and the perceptions you have about the work you're doing. Think about the tasks you're doing in your job and assessing whether or not those things are uh, ones in which you can uh, elevate. Can you take on new duties? Can you take on you know some other particular thing? Can you uh, do more of that or less of something else? Uh, and expanding or or uh, you know uh, uh, minimizing uh, the scope of the work you're doing. Uh, then of course my whole notion of really excellence, right? upping the standard on what you're doing so that you're able to. So that's in the task paradigm. Um, then there's the relationship paradigm, which is, uh, can you, it says here, I'm, I'm going to link to an article on, in, on Harvard, Business, Harvard Business Review's website. And it says, quote, you can change the nature or extent of your interactions with others. A managing director, for example, might create mentoring relationships with young associates as a way to connect with and teach those who represent the future of the firm, end quote. And then there are the perceptions, which is, of course, changing how you think about your job and or certain aspects of the job. Uh, again, uh, the, the notion here is that you may just be really upset about the way in which you are treated in an organization. But in reality, what might be happening is that you're highly valued, uh, but perhaps you just have an annoying personality. And <laughs> and you may not think you have an annoying personality, but those are always the people who have annoying personalities, right? Because they don't uh, they aren't aware of it. And so we have to we have to take a little bit of introspection and perhaps a, a paradigm shift about where and what we are valued for in an organization. And that gives us opportunities to develop, to change, uh, to grow in those skills. Because you can say, okay, well, perhaps I'm annoying because I care about details and other people around me are visionary thinkers. So how do I speak better to visionary thinkers and that way I'm not as annoying to them, right? And that, that frustration, that conflict orientation then gives you an opportunity to actually grow and be more productive with those people while still holding true, holding authentically to who you are. You're growing as a person. So those three pieces, tasks, relationships, and perceptions, how do you be in right relationship with those pieces in your career? And that's that's really, at least in this HBR perspective, uh, the the notion behind job crafting. So hopefully you all have gotten some uh, value out of thinking about uh, should you do what you love as a career 
or avocation or hobby or otherwise, and starting to think about this from a, a little bit more productive perspective. The tendency for anyone, and this is this loops back to the conversation, the the conversation we started in the beginning, the 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 reason for the show, the the idea that I, I shared about people who are mission driven and basically working too long and too hard because they believe that they are on a huge mission. I, I think there's a, the danger here is to collapse our thinking or, or commitments into any one dimension only and not, not pay attention to all of them at the same time. And I know it's harder to do that. And society would, you know, there's, I interviewed someone the other day who basically said that the reason that what he was saying was true is because somebody earned a billion, several billion dollars using it. And that's all that people needed to know is that that level of financial success was proof that that worked. And I had to, you know, in midstream, mid-interview, basically say, well, there's people who don't have that as the number one motive and they would measure it completely differently. And his person said, oh, yeah, yeah I agree. But his his head was stuck in that there's one measure of success and fulfillment and that is just not true anymore that that folks who are who have that mindset end up doing damage to themselves and others and ultimately to society i think i couldn't agree more i couldn't agree more well this has been uh, a really fun conversation so thank you gentlemen and uh, the, the conversation doesn't have to end. So if you have a comment that you'd like to join in this conversation about this cast or something that we just discussed today, feel free to head over to the podcast website. Uh, we invite you to jump over there to productivitycast.net forward slash the three digit episode number. So 001002 and so forth. Those are the episode numbers. Uh, go ahead and just go to productivitycast.net forward slash and then that number you'll be taken to the episode page. And there at the bottom of the page, uh, you can leave a comment, you can leave a question, and one of us will be glad to respond. Uh, there also on productivitycast.net, you'll find the show notes for each episode, which includes a machine-generated transcript, so you can scan through and just find points in the conversation if you needed to. You'll also find links to anything that we discussed and a, a downloadable version, actually, of the transcript as well. You can learn how to follow any of us or learn more about any of us there and also how to subscribe uh, through that's following us through your favorite podcast app. You can find out how to do that there on the website as well. There's a whole page dedicated to it. If you have any questions uh, about personal productivity and you'd like us to tackle that topic here on Productivity Cast, please feel free to go to productivitycast.net forward slash contact and you can go ahead and uh, leave a voice recorded message or you can type a message to us and we'll get that and we'll consider it for a future episode. And so thank you for those contributions coming in. And uh, so that's that's it. I've got um, just thanks for Augusto Pinaud and, and Francis Wade for joining me here on this cast. Uh, if you can, please leave a rating review in Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or whatever podcast app you use that allows ratings and reviews. Uh, thank you uh, for doing that. And uh, that really helps us to grow our personal productivity listening community. Um, and so we appreciate you doing that. Uh, this brings us to the close of Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things personal productivity. Take care. Here's to your productive life, everybody.
That's it for this Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things productivity, with your hosts, Ray Sidney Smith and Augusto Pinaud, with Francis Wade and Art Gelwicks.